On this episode of Please Be Advised, the new sexual harassment regulations in New York and New York City are reviewed and discussed with attorney Stephen Seltzer. We have Stephen Seltzer from the Seltzer Law Group. Thank you for joining us today, Stephen. Hi, Greg. Pleasure to be here. Uh, we also have Cynthia Katz, a corporate attorney at Savoy Trendon. Hi, Greg. Hi, Steve. Hi, Cynthia. And today we're going to be talking about the sexual harassment regulations that have been put in place for New York, both state and city. Uh, there are a lot of employers in the dark on complying with the new harassment regulations, and we're going to help you out with that. The state finalized their sexual harassment policy and training requirements on, in October. The city put in the Stop Sexual Harassment Act back in May. The city, yeah, May, May of this year. Let's jump into some of these regulations real quick. When do you have to comply by? What are the compliance dates? Right. So there are a lot of compliance dates here. So let's jump into some of those. So the first one is sexual harassment policy. The state is saying that you have to distribute that by October 9, 2018. So that deadline, deadline has passed. If you have not done that, you should get on that. Do it, do it, immediately, <laughs> do it immediately, obviously, because these new requirements are known to everybody, employers and employees. If an employee has an issue in the workplace and looks into this and sees that the uh, harassment policy distribution uh, requirement has not been complied with, they have every right and every reason to make a complaint to the New York State Division of Human Rights or possibly the Department of Labor. Fines can be imposed. Yeah, what's the danger of not having this harassment policy in place? You, you, you're subject to fines. That brings my big, uh, big question for me about enforcement. So... Mm -hmm. How do you see this primarily being enforced in terms of, I mean, I don't think, and I you correct me if I'm wrong, but that the city or the state is planning on doing random audits or anything like that. But it's more the idea that if an issue arises, an employee complains, particularly goes to, to a lawyer and says, what are my rights? The lawyer's going to find out whether they've complied with the law and to the extent that they haven't, that's going to tack on charges or at least also give credence to any allegations, tack on penalties and fines to any complaint that an employee may have. I mean, that's my thought. Uh, Steve, what, how do you see this? Agreed. Um, the employee has a number of different avenues of recourse once they've identified an issue of uh, sexual harassment or hostile working environment. One would be to go to a private lawyer and bring a lawsuit uh, in the state or federal courts in which case the non-compliance with the distribution would not result in a fine. I don't, I don't see anything in the new laws that state that there's a private right of action for this, but it, it would be supportive corroborating evidence in any sexual harassment, hostile work environment lawsuit of the employer's non-compliance with the law and turning a blind eye to sexual harassment. So that's if the employee goes the private litigation route. The employee, for whatever reason, may not want to hire a private lawyer or may not be able to find a private lawyer, in which case the employee could go to the New York State Division of Human Rights and file a complaint or the New York City Commission on Human Rights and file a complaint. And those investigative agencies would take up the investigation of that complaint. And if that were to happen, that is when fines could be imposed. Do you see this having a potential to be exploited in terms of where 
say an employee is fired and they have, you know, now they have a reason and now they make a sexual harassment allegation or they claim that uh, automatically now, let's just say that no sexual harassment can ultimately be proved. And it turns out that there was no, they do an investigation and they find out that there was no sexual harassment, but that there was lack of compliance with the, they didn't do the training or they didn't distribute the the policy and that order to to get that off of the Department of Human Rights screen radar, they just come to some sort of private settlement. Typically, and we haven't seen the enforcement yet, but in general, when the agency does an investigation and finds noncompliance with the training or the policy distribution requirements, they would enter into a settlement agreement with the violating employer. Typically, those agreements actually acknowledge the violation impose some sort of an agreed upon monetary penalty. So as long as the employee goes to the agency, I do not see the employer being able uh, to get away with any of this. Also effective September 6th for city employers, there was a fact sheet that was adopted and must be given out to employees. Employers needed to define what constitutes sexual harassment and delineate employees' rights and resources, as well as display informational posters of all pertinent information. That was due September 6th. So if you have not done that, you need to get on that immediately. You can download all these forms on the New York City Sexual Harassment Act website. Yeah, absolutely. So between the city and the state, now my understanding, Greg, I think you may know the answer to this. The city applies when you have 15 employees or more, and the state applies even if you have one employee, is that correct? Um, well, the 15 or more employee guideline is for providing annual interactive anti-sexual harassment training. For the city, if you have 15 or more employees, you must complete this compliance by April 1st, 2019. For the state, the compliance deadline is October 9, 2019. Now, there are some differences between the two compliances for the city and the state. The big one is, as you mentioned, and this is just this is just the training, Greg. That is training, correct? Right. Okay. Just so, training. Right. So people can follow along. We have right. different deadlines for different tasks. Correct. And this is a new guideline. This is a new requirement for people in New York City, in New York City, and New York. And in reality, is that correct, Steve? This was never required before. This is correct. It was never explicitly required by legislation. The training was something that was highly advisable. Uh, in view of the state of the law for uh, risk management purposes for employers, but it was never explicitly required until now. The city, April 1, 2019, companies with 15 or more employees must provide this annual interactive anti-sexual harassment training within 90 days of an employee start date. So not only must you give this training yearly to your employees, if you have a new employee start, you must give it to them within 90 days. That's for New York City employers. Now the state, you must give this annual interactive training beginning October 9, 2019. You must complete the training by that date and then give it annually from there. There are some very interesting regulations regarding this training. The first part that I thought was very interesting was the record keeping requirement. For the state, the state is saying that employers are not required to keep records of compliance with the law. Do you have any comments on that? Well, I mean, I think as we've touched on before, whether the state requires it or not, it's to your benefit to keep the records. I mean, you want to be able to prove compliance. So 
having the records would help you, assuming you're you're complying. So that would be the practice, whether they required it or not, um, because in the absence of them, how are you going to prove compliance other than depositions of people that participated? That would that would absolutely be the best practice to keep a record of compliance and preserve it for at least six years. Steve, can, do you have any idea why they would put that requirement in or non-requirement? It really could have been an oversight or it just could have been political negotiation. New York State is a large, uh, uh, it's a large territory and uh, it might have, that might have just been a political compromise. I can't see any valid legal reason to not require record keeping, right. now, which the city does require. Uh, Greg Beckham, you're saying the record, the lack of a record keeping requirement applies to the training. But do you, is there any record keeping requirement with regard to distribution of the policy or the complaint form or any requirement, you know, to acknowledge receipt? For the state, there is no requirement for record keeping. For New York City, there is a requirement. Just to summarize, so far, the requirements we've discussed are to have the policy that meets the standards and distribute it to employees along with a complaint form that they can use for you know internal complaints and then to do the training. Right. And this is this is part of the confusion for a lot of employers, especially employers who are in New York City. They're beholden to two regulations here and they really have to go with the regulation that is the the, stri- the stricter regulation. The stricter, correct. Yep. New York City, keep records, state, not necessary, but recommended. Yeah, it's best practice to to keep to keep the records anywhere in the state. Steve, are you able to talk a little bit about companies that have had these regulations in place already and how it's helped them or not helped them? What's best practices for companies to do? Best practice, really, regardless of whether you're in New York City or you're in New York State outside of the city, is to comply with the New York City regulation. The city regs really make it very easy for the employer to establish sexual harassment policies, anti-sexual harassment policies, to address retaliation, which is a significant problem that we can talk about as we get into this, and gives very good guidelines for, uh, for training. They even provide an online training model as a baseline that employers can use. So uh, the best practice is really to comply with the stricter New York City law. And in the event of any proceeding being brought against you, if you're outside the city or litigation, you can show that you took sexual harassment issues in the workplace seriously, and you ramped up your uh, training and prevention mechanisms and to not have such a problem. So that's really in the employer's best interest. And would you advise employers, all employers to do this regardless of size? Yes, I would. I would. It, it's not a, whether you're in court or whether you're in a proceeding before the State Division of Human Rights, it's never a credible defense to say I was too small to address sexual harassment. Once an issue was brought to your attention as an employer, if it's something between, between co-workers, you really have to do something about it. And it's always better to do something about the problem before the problem even manifests itself. In your opinion, how effective do you think these regulations are going to be? It remains to be seen. I do think that New York City is really doing employers a favor. The requirements only apply to businesses with 15 or more employees, but the cost of doing the training, revising anti-sexual harassment policies and complaint procedures is not particularly great. You could do the training for free, online, I would recommend actually doing in-person training 
and um, hiring an independent consultant. And there are consultants that do this to provide interactive training so that the training ha has a higher likelihood of being more effective. Not a very great cause to do, to do that. And then once you've done that, hopefully you won't have an issue. But it's also important to note that the standards for proving sexual harassment in New York City are much more lenient than they are at the federal level and at the state level outside the city. It's a, a lower burden of proof in terms of uh, the type of conduct that has to be proven. And it's also easier for uh, companies to be held uh, to be held liable for harassing conduct by, um, by subordinates and, and, and lower managerial personnel. So given the lower standard in play with the city law, uh, I, I think the city did employers a favor by uh, giving a very detailed uh, roadmap for addressing these problems in the workplace. Now, let me ask you about much smaller employees. You did mention that employers who are smaller, it's not a viable defense. Now, how do they handle this type of training? Do you recommend that they bring in an outside consultant to do this thing, or should they do the online training? Cynthia mentioned that if you have an employer with one employee, that's two people. Who do they go and make these complaints to? What's the best course of action for these people? I would say it's case specific. I haven't looked at the online training to explain how, how effective it is in general, in-person training is going to be more effective than the online training. Uh, we don't know if the online training could really be just a cursory clicking through screens as opposed to an in-person training uh, where there would be questions and answers. It would be it would be interactive, and you have a better chance of the trainees actually learning what they need to be learned. And given the way the training industry is developing, I would expect that businesses and entities that are offering this type of training would be able to model training for smaller for smaller firms to fit, fit their budgetary needs and to fit the scenario involving you know, just two or three people in a, in a, in a, in a small workplace. So I, I still I still believe that at least you should be exploring in-person training with an independent outside outside consultant. Now, can I ask you how, what is the employer's liability here? So let's just say the employer complies to the letter as perfectly as possible. They get an outside consultant, they do the training, they have the correct policies, they're all acknowledged, everyone's on board. Nonetheless, you know, an incident happens and somebody brings a, you know, fills out the complaint form, brings, brings it to their attention. They do a, you know, investigation, which consists of interviewing, you know, having neutral parties interview both people seeing if there were any witnesses or other evidence and it's essentially a he said she said and they've now done this if they just say okay we don't have any definitive proof one way or the other you know we're going to make sure that the two of you are separated do they still have liability do they need to take the accuser's word for it do they need to fire the accused person are they then open to retaliation from the accused and saying that I didn't do anything and I'm being fired. So basically, how much can you mitigate your exposure by compliance? By having these policies and doing this training, have you significantly mitigated your, your exposure to liability for harassment claims? The answer to that question, Cynthia, is that it depends upon where you are located. If you are located 
outside of the city of New York. It is a complete defense to a claim of sexual harassment by one co-worker to another if the employer promptly investigates and takes remedial measure. That's an absolute defense at the federal and state level. Now, there may be, if, if there's a recurrence of events after the fact, then there's at least a question of fact as to whether the remedial measure was effective, and then you would lose a defense and face, li and face liability. If that doesn't happen, if there's no reoccurrence, then the company has an absolute defense that it took a prompt and remedial measure and the compliance with the stricter city uh, requirements, even though one would be outside the city, would be very beneficial towards prompt and effectively uh, addressing the problem and thereby earning the complete defense. Now, if you're in the city, it's an entirely different liability situation. Under the city law, if there is harassment by a managerial or supervisory employee, the employer's liable. There's going to be vicarious li liability, even if that employer has exercised uh, reasonable care uh, to prevent and correct harassing or discriminatory actions. And that's been litigated at, at the highest level. You're in a better position in the city if it's coworker harassment or discriminate or discrimination uh, because then you would have a defense that a manager or a supervisor didn't know. It's a situation where the manager or supervisor did not know and did not acquiesce to the conduct, then you could still, then you could still have a, a defense and compliance would lend itself to putting the employer in a position to have that defense. But if it's a managerial or a supervisor performing the harassment, which is unfortunately uh, something that occurs far too often, there's going to be liability in New York City. Um, so, but again, if you're doing the training, then managers and supervisors should not be doing that. And that's why I would recommend the in-person yeah. in training. Because when you're dealing with someone in a group setting or a small group setting, and it's interactive, uh, more effective, and it's going to register in somebody's mind as opposed to uh, quickly scrolling through a, a, a series of online slides or, or, what, or what have you. So what you're saying, which I mean is important, it really it does behoove you solely from a bottom line perspective to not just try to go through the motions, but to actually try and prevent this stuff from happening. Absolutely, ab absolutely because you're, you're, you're really open in the city of New York. And in general, even if it's not a, a manager or a supervisor that's doing it, there's usually going to be a question of fact as to whether management knew about co-worker harassment because, you know, typically an employee wouldn't come forward with a private lawsuit or a complaint to uh, the anti-discrimination agency if they didn't have some reason to believe that others within the company, within the, the business, knew about what was going on or had some reason to know about what was going on. New York City, if we need to mention, is that they also extended the time for the statute of limitations for filing a claim in New York City. It was for an agent for an agency complaint from one to three years. Uh, it's always Correct. been it's always been three years to bring a private lawsuit. So as as employers okay. think about this, you have to separate the tracks of exposure. Uh, one track is litigation in the courts. Statute of limitations has always been three years. Uh, the other tract is bringing the agency complaint, uh, which uh, has been one year and is now expanded to three for uh, gender harassment complaints. So in addition to the training, what's very significant to me is that the state has banned arbitration clauses for sexual harassment claims. So any 
arbitration agreements, and those are typically included in the employee handbook, the beginning of employment, that is signed or entered into uh, after the enactment of the state laws is null and void. Arbitration is typically viewed as, I'm not going to say employer-centric, but preferred by employers because there were costs involved in arbitration that uh, the employee typically cannot bear. And it's usually preferable to having an arbitrator decide a claim as, as opposed to a jury. You cannot do that anymore for sexual harassment claims. Yeah. So what you're saying that arbitration clauses in a, in a employee handbook or when an employee joins up with a company and they sign one of those clauses, it will not be valid for sexual harassment claims, but it could be valid for other items, correct? Yes, other items of discrimination. Gotcha. So you you would be, and if an employee were to go the route of bringing this to a, to the state division of human rights attention, you're looking at fines. So you want to you want to review your employee handbooks as as a business, and you want to see if you have any arbitration clauses, and you need to revise those to exempt sexual harassment claims. That's very important. The other item is um, when is that effective? It would run with the effective date of the state law, so that it's already effective now, and that's, that, that was enacted in April. Any arbitration clause entered into prior to that date would still be valid, uh, but anything after April of this year, uh, you're really looking at a problem if you're an employer. So employers should have employees sign new arbitration clauses? Is that what you're saying? Yes, you should have a qualified employment lawyer review your handbooks and all items distributed to uh, to employees at the time of hire or anything really distributed to employees regarding terms and conditions of employment and revise those to uh, eliminate arbitration, mandatory arbitration for uh, sexual harassment complaints. Uh, I mean, my only thought is, well, what about a severance agreement where you have, you know, a, a separation, you know, you're not admitting liability. It's not necessarily about harassment. Per se, but then you say any disputes, you know, related to this severance agreement have to be done in arbitration. That's um, fine. Okay. That, that, that's fine. But I, I want to pivot off that to the other uh, new, new requirement. Just about every um, employment discrimination settlement agreement, there's a non-disclosure confidentiality provision. The settlement amount is kept is is to be kept confidential. The fact of settlement is to be kept confidential. And the facts that gave rise to the claim that resulted in the settlement have to be kept confidential. That's in every employment discrimination and sexual harassment uh, settlement agreement. Um, and typically, uh, not always, but often, there are strong penalties to enforce that in the agreement, such as liquidated damages, mandatory repayment of the, of the settlement amount if, you, if the employee breaches confidentiality, things of that nature. With this new law, a non-disclosure for a sexual harassment claim cannot be forced upon an employee. The employee, uh, the settling employee would have to consent to that. So if it's found to be uh, that there is a non-disclosure in a settlement, in a settlement agreement, the employer is going to have a problem. This is relating to state regulations, correct? This is the state. This is this is the state regulation. The timing for this being introduced is a little bit unclear to me, but it's going to be it's going to be implemented very very soon. Um, and it would only apply for um, forward looking for agreements entered into after that date, correct? Yes, correct. Okay. Correct. But you're you're really treading on thin ice if you're if you're insisting upon that as the employer 
or the employer's counsel. It's only allowed if it's the employee's preference to keep it to, to keep the sexual harassment claim confidential, which it may which it may often be. And if that's the case, uh, then best practice would be to explicitly include in the agreement, uh, if you're representing the employer, that the it is the employee's preference that this confidentiality clause be incorporated and to proceed in that manner. Because otherwise, if you don't include that language, you're going to have a real problem with enforcement if you enter into a settlement and uh, the employee changes uh, his or her mind about it later on and decides to complain about a confidentiality clause. In your opinion, is this going to affect settlements and, and litigation down the line? Is it going to influence how people settle these cases? It will have an effect. It remains to be seen what effect. I don't know that this provision would increase the amounts of, of settlements. It could have the impact of lowering the amounts of settlements that settlements that, that employers are willing to pay because, hey, it's going to be public anyway. Um, why would I, why would I want to pay you a million dollars when I could pay and have that publicized? I might as well pay you $150,000 if it's going to, if it's going to be publicized anyway. So it may not be very helpful. It may, this, this may turn out to be, uh, more helpful for employers than for employees with respect to amounts of settlements. I can speak from experience in at least a couple of cases I've had that have settled. Confidentiality is a large part of what the employer wanted to pay for. And if that's not enforceable, they certainly were just not going to, to you know, they weren't interested in offering the settlement that they were right. going to offer. Right. It, it'll certainly, and as I think about this, it'll certainly uh, influence negotiations. You might, as an employer, tell the, you know, again, I'm assuming everybody has experienced counsel, the employee and the employer. Everyone's, everyone's, everyone's got counsel representing them regarding a sexual harassment claim. And you might say, listen, if you're going to, as the employer, if you're going to agree um, to confidentiality, then we're going to pay you this amount, which would be greater than the amount that we're willing to pay if you, you don't want confidentiality. And of course, then you'd have to have language indicating it was the employee's preference because they prefer to get more money. So now they prefer to get to get confidentiality. So I could see it leading to um, that type of a negotiation. If it's the employee's decision, then I, I think that's a good thing too. Yeah, the non-disclosure provision is in effect immediately, beginning October 1. If a claim comes in, you have to really be prepared for it when the claim comes in. You have to prepare your negotiations in advance. You have to you have to know how you, you have to know how you're going to negotiate as the employer. I think if we can recap the main things, you've got to get your policies uh, up to date if they're not, and you gotta get them out and, and have the back end procedures to support them. You know, a lot of people you have to be able to put your money, you know, do what you say and have the, the, the teams and the steps in place to handle the complaints and then the training and also how you be prepared to negotiate and deal with these issues as they arise. Um, but I think we all touched on in the, particularly in New York City, as, as um, was mentioned, that you actually, these regulations in a way are helping you because it, it behooves the employer to, to do everything that they can to stop these issues from, from arising. And, you know, that these regulations are really aimed to doing that so that they're really not sure or properly shouldn't be looked at as, as additional, you know, costs and burdens, but as help in, in mitigating the ultimate closure that comes from, from having an incident. Totally agree. And I would just emphasize, do the in-person training. It's worth it to spend the money on doing that 
so that one, you can minimize the chances of there actually being a claim in the workplace. And two, if there is such a claim, then the, the company can credibly and effectively take the position that we did everything that we could to make sure that there was no chance of sexual harassment occurring in the workplace. Some things uh, are just unfortunately out of our control. So really do the in-person training. And if anyone has any questions, you can reach out to Steve. We'll make put a link at the end of this podcast and make sure you reach out to Steve and he'll have all the answers for you. Absolutely. We can, we can certainly do that. Thank you, Steve, for joining us and giving us your insight and all the information that employers need to have for keeping up with these regulations. Greg, Cynthia, thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Steve. Always appreciate the uh, the litigation perspective and the you know hands-on front lines, which is really really helpful, really informative. Excellent. Thank you, everyone. Okay. okay thank you.